0: Welcome. My name is Julian Schlossberg, and the name of our show is Movie Talk. And each week, we'll be talking to some of the men and women who work in motion pictures, theater, and television. Today, we continue with part two of Richard Benjamin's interview. When we left Dick during part one, he had just finished co-starring in The Sunshine Boys with Walter Matthau and George Burns. We now join him as he's working with Walter Matthau, once again. Let's talk in terms of Walter, because you do Sunshine Boys, you become sure friends, and then you're going to do house calls together. You have an idea about a little research. We're operating on
1: somebody at the beginning of the film. And I say, well, we've got to do some research. We have to see an operation. And he said, what for? So I said, "We got to be able to handle these instruments and You don't know how, so it looks right. He said, listen, I'm Walter Matthau. He said, do you think the audience is going to think I became a doctor to do this part? So I said, look, we got to do the, all right, all right. He had a doctor, which was near Santa Anita Racetrack. Uh, (laughs) And that doctor is going to let us in to see an operation. It's going to be an angiogram. They have to make an incision and put a tube into this guy. He said, okay, we're going to watch that. He says, all right, so we're ready to go in, and they put a gown on us and stuff, and Walter, the last me says, I'm not doing this. Forget it. <laughs> so he said, I have to make a phone call. I said, really? He said, yeah, I'm not doing this. So I go in, and they make an incision in this guy, and the next thing I know, I'm looking at linoleum. <laughs> Right out on the floor, staring at a piece of linoleum. And a nurse comes over to me and she said, are you okay? I said, yeah. yeah. She said, oh, was this your first opening? I said, well, I've been on Broadway. Is that what you said? She said, no, that's what we call that when they make an incision. It's I said, oh, Yeah. yeah. Well, you should have told us that. And they sit me on a stool and say, You may not want to watch the closing. (laughs) I said, Maybe not. And my legs are so weak that they put me in a like a not an exact wheelchair, but the the stool and they wheel me out and Walter's there. And he says, What the hell happened? I said, I got a little lightheaded. She said, lightheaded? He was passed out on the, on the floor. Walter thought it was hysterical. And he said, you know what? So I said, what? while you were in there, I was on the phone. I just won two races at Santa Anita. I made $3,000 while you were on the floor
0: there. <laughs> well, I'm kind of going to jump into a whole different uh, area of because of your directing, I'm so amazed that you start out and your first movie is my favorite year, which is incredible. This movie got such good reviews and Peter O'Toole was nominated for the Academy Award. But let's talk in terms of the casting of my favorite year, because there's some great stories about how Albert Finney, Peter O'Toole, Joe Bologna, let's just take one at a time And go with that. Alan Swan, the lead was going to be? Peter O'Toole. So
1: Paul and I are in New York doing an industrial something for time life. (laughs) And uh, Phil Gersh's son, David, sends me this script and says, because I have that pilot, there was something to see. And it was a pilot of the film Where's Papa? So there was something to see. And... David sends me this script, and he says, if you like this, they would like to meet with you. Well, I read it. Paula was watching me read it, and I said, this thing is great. Because I knew all of it. I'd been to all the places. You talked before about being a page. So I knew every inch of NBC in those studios and where everything
0: was and stuff. And in my favorite year, it takes place at NBC.
1: Yeah, right. It's a, you know, it's sort of be your show. Shows It's a Caesar show. So when we come back, we meet, and we all hit it off and stuff like that. And they say, okay, we want you to do this. So again, if I hadn't done the pilot, if I hadn't had the conversation with Phil about directing and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, they say to me, we've offered it to Albert Finney. He's up in uh, San Francisco making a movie called Shoot the Moon, but he hasn't committed. If he commits, we've got a green light. And so you have to go up there and convince him. So <laughs> I go up and actors know other actors. I know he's charming. We have lunch. We're talking about everything else. But I know he's going to say no. Yes. I know it. And then finally, I asked him the question, which I was sent up there for, will you do our movie? He said, you know, I've done three movies in a row here, and I've got to get back to the theater in England where I make 125 pounds a week. (laughs) But I've got to get back to the theater. So why don't you get Peter? We do this all the time. Uh, He'll be offered something, turns it down, I do it. And meanwhile, Paula, who had worked with Peter in What's New Pussycat, had said even before I went up there, you know, O'Toole, he'd be great for this. and stuff like that. So I call them from the airport and I say, he's not going to do it. So I say, what about O'Toole? And they say, yes, he's on the list. There's a, it's a very short list. Yes, but you, we have to find him. We have to see where he is and get him. Anyway, we get back down to here in LA, in my office, MGM, and we start looking for him. We call his agent. They don't quite know where he is. And he said, Well, he's got a farm in Ireland, but there's no phone. And you call this pub, <laughs> they know where he is. <laughs> and the time difference I'm in my office at MGM and I'm calling an Irish pub. <laughs> When they pick up the phone, it sounds like there's a riot going on in there. <laughs> and I said, I'm looking for Peter. Oh, I don't know. he's not to we don't know. And I said, I don't know. I'll call his manager. And the manager says, um, he's at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. I said,
0: oh, gosh. What? I said, yeah,
1: he's at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Okay. So, I call him, uh, get him, and say, you know, about this. He kind of knows something about it. And I said, he said, well, bring the script over, and
0: I'll read it and let you know. When Paula was making the movie with him, did you get to know him? Did you know him? Or not really? No, not at all. They were in uh,
1: Paris. I was on the road with Barefoot, actually. Right. I had never met him, didn't know him. So that was
0: your first meeting when you went over. Yeah, and he's there in
1: a kind of dressing gown. I mean, he is the character. I mean, you can see it right away. And he said, well, um, would you like some tea? And all that. He said, I shall read this, and I shall call you tomorrow. And I said, okay. So the next day comes, and now Norman Steinberg, who wrote it, and I are in my office, and we're just waiting for the phone to ring because we know if he says yes, a movie is going to be made. We wait and wait and wait. He calls, and they said, I have read everything except the last 10 pages. I shall call you when I finish the lab. Okay, lab. No. So at the end of the script, the original script, the last scene is at Hollywood Cemetery because he's passed on in the original script. And the character, Benji, played by Mark Lynn Baker, there's one last scene where he walks through the cemetery, and in a voiceover, he says, Swan asked me to do this every year on his birthday. And we get to a gravestone with the birth date and the death date on the gravestone. And Mark takes out a bottle of Covassier and pours it onto the gravestone. And that's the last shot, the last scene in the pictures. we move in on the gravestone in the original script. Uh, and I shot this. Finally, the phone rings. It's him. And he said, all right, do you have the script there? And I said, yeah. He said, will you turn to the last page? And I said, yeah. And he said, it says on the gravestone, the birth date of August something, something, something. And I said, yeah. So he said, that's my birthday. He said, do you put this in the script to whoever you send this to? And I said, no, the Norman just made up a date. He just made up any day." No. He said, well, in this case, I'll have to do the
0: movie. ha! <laughs> my God. Dick, let me ask you a question. Why didn't he read the last 10 pages? Did you ever find out? Well, he, it was just time. It, it wasn't. He hadn't gotten to it yet. Oh, I see. He hadn't finished. He just hadn't finished. He knew no. he was supposed to call us. Yes. He wanted to say, I haven't finished it yet. Let's do the Joe Bologna part. So Mel says to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt and just say that Mel Brooks is the producer. And Mike Kroskopf
1: are the producers, yeah.
0: It's his company. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And okay, he says, the King Kaiser part. Yeah, Joe Bologna. He said, get Joe Bologna. So I said, yeah, Joe, he'd be great. We send him the script. I call him. And he says, well, thanks very much. I'm glad you thought of me, but no thanks. It's not for me. I said, you sure? Yeah, not for me. So I I called Mel. He turned us down. He doesn't want to do it. Mel is jumping up and down on the phone saying, unacceptable, (laughs) unacceptable. And I said, well, he said, unacceptable, call him back. (laughs) I said, Mel, call him back. I called Joe. I said, I know you said no, but maybe you could rethink this thing, give it a little more thought. He said, I don't need any more thought. (laughs) Well, I don't don't want to do it, but I appreciate you thinking of me and all that. Uh, I said, are you sure? Absolutely sure. You don't need to call me again. (laughs) Now I see Mel, and I say to him, okay, he's turned it down twice, and he actually said, don't call it. (laughs) Unacceptable. Unacceptable. (laughs) Call him back. I said, Mel, he doesn't. Call him back. (laughs) I said, I call. I said, Joe, this is embarrassing. You've turned us down. You don't want any part of it, but we we really want you to do it. And he says, Okay, I'll do it.
0: <laughs> what? <the hell? laughs> and that's your that's your casting of your first movie.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and that's Mel, the producer, knowing actors. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. to keep after them. Yeah.
0: When you were working, starring in film, what were you looking for from a director as an actor?
1: Well, I don't know. I, I mean, Mike, of course, w- would give you these insights into things. Uh, like I said before, saying like in real life, uh, if you, you've got a phone call, but you don't know quite what he said, it's your mother. Your mother is on the phone, okay? Well, then you know the whole Um, the world of that and what that means. So he was able to give you these kind of wonderful insights into human behavior. They're all different. Larry Pierce was great. He was full of energy and excitement about making a a film like Goodbye Columbus. They're all different. You have in your head what you want to do. I mean, I (laughs) actually... Herb Raw said to me one day, on Sunshine Boys, he came over to me and he said, "You have to be funnier." I said, oh, "Okay, <laughs> I guess I'll do that." You know, you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. uh, all different, all different.
0: I know you would never say that to an actor. I know that—that's for sure. Let me ask this: Your second movie is Catch Twenty Two. You're in Mexico. Yeah. Every actor in the business is there, and down comes the big O, Orson Welles. Were you around for that? Oh, yeah. I was around all right. Would you tell us a little bit about the big O?
1: Yeah. So Mike first says, he said, all right, Orson Welles is coming tomorrow. He said, now, (laughs) he said, I'm going to be a very different kind of person tomorrow when he's here. You probably won't recognize me, but I'll be different because it's Orson Welles. So I'll behave differently. I'll act differently. Please don't hold it against me. (laughs) Once he's gone, I'll be just like I used to be. (laughs) Because this legend was coming, right? So the 2nd AD comes to all of us and says, Mr. Welles is arriving tomorrow, and he has told us, you are not to speak to him. You want even to look at him, except when you're working with him. He wants to be left entirely alone. Don't try and catch his eye and just keep your distance. Okay. Uh, so we're all there, me and Alan and Paula and uh, Voigt and uh, Balaban, all of us. And Bob Newhart and uh, everybody.
0: And Austin Pendleton.
1: And Austin, yeah. So he comes and he's already in his general's uniform because we're going to shoot something later. And we're in the middle of nowhere uh, in Wymas and we're at the air base that Dick Silver built. And so it's blazing sun and stuff. We have umbrellas over us sitting in these little chairs. And Wells is sitting about 20, I don't know, 30 feet away from us by himself with his own umbrella, <laughs> sitting there kind of looking off. And we thought, okay, they told us not to talk to him. He doesn't, oh, yeah, that's fine. We're talking away, talking away. <laughs> I don't know. An hour later, the first AD comes to us and says, uh, Mr. Wells is kind of perplexed and kind of upset. And we say, Why? Well, he said, nobody's talking to him. Nobody wants to come in near him. I said, what? He He said, who told you? that?" He said, the 2nd AD came to us and said, he said, everyone must stay away. He said, we don't know where that came from. But if you could please, we all in our chairs scurry over with (laughs) our chairs all under his umbrella. (laughs) Stories start to explode out of him and stuff. He's so happy that we're there and talking to him. We didn't even bring up why we weren't there or anything. Now, what he doesn't know, he starts to tell an elaborate story about Leland Hayward, who was a big producer and stuff. And he tells this big, elaborate, funny, complicated story that lands on some kind of joke about Leland Hayward. What he doesn't know is that Buck is going with Brooke Hayward, Leland's daughter, who is sitting right there. Oh, golly. He finishes the story, and Brooke says, Mr. Wells, I'm Brooke Hayward, Leland Hayward's daughter. I think that story is completely untrue. And he said, You know, you may be right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, I, for a short time, handled the Orson Welles estate, Oh, and he absolutely was interested. He loved telling stories, and he just didn't care if it was true or not, as long as it was a good story. Right, right, yeah. Now, how did Mike change, Richard? Did you observe him changing? Oh, not
1: really. He didn't really change. He was kidding, I think when he said that he
0: did he didn't really he told me a funny story with Wells what he told me was that he was sure that when Orson Wells came, Wells was going to say to Mike, "Is that where the camera is going to be?" and Mike said, "Oh yeah and Wells would go over there <laughs>
1: he actually in the scene I had with him, he said something about a lens and the camera and he said, "Well if it's here and I'm here am am I in focus, if that lens is right. He
0: did say something about that. He did. He did kind of know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. uh, yeah. Now tell me, if you would, a little bit about Westworld. You're a Jewish guy from New York City, (laughs) and you're going to do a Western? Were you even concerned about doing a Western? No, it would be
1: the only way a guy, a Jewish kid from the Upper West Side is going to be in a Western It's going to be in a you know in a in a one where it was in a fantasy park where a regular guy was going to you know think that he was in a in a western and that by the way is the other brilliant Mike which is uh, Michael Crichton again that's the same thing like with Mike Nichols you just you're in an environment where you're around a super super smart person
0: and I think it may have been his first movie that he was directing. It was, yeah, he was because he was a huge best-selling author, of course. Yeah, yeah,
1: and uh, and <laughs> and Paul and I were in New York at that time. Our agent was Sue Mengers, and we were going in to see a play. And I got a message somehow to call her, and I did. She said, "There's this movie, Michael Crichton. It's a. It's called Westworld. Uh, they want you, and you should do it." And I said, "Well." Uh, okay, I'd like I'd like to read it. She said, well, you can read it, but I already told them you're going to do it. Whoa.
0: <laughs> and that was Sue. <laughs> I think she did that with you on Last of Sheila too, didn't she? Same thing with Last of Sheila. And honey,
1: I already told them. Yes, so I did and, and really, uh, you know, thought this this is great. And it was the only way a kid like me was going to have six guns and write uh, a Uh, Outdraw you, Brenner, and stuff like that. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun.
2: If you like audiobooks, then you will simply love the latest from Julian Schlossberg, entitled Try Not to Hold It Against Me. In his memoir read by the author, Schlossberg tells of negotiating with Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds, and Lillian Hellman, hosting the syndicated radio show Movie Talk, interviewing stars like Jack Nicholson, George Burns, Betty Davis, and Bob Hope experiencing the paranormal with Shirley MacLaine and Betty Hill, restoring Orson Welles' masterly film Othello, partying with Barbara Streisand and Liza Minnelli, testifying in a lawsuit against the Beatles, whom he loved, and interviewing over 140 major figures for his series Witnesses to the 20th Century. With a forward by Academy Award winner Elaine May, Try Not to Hold It Against Me, gives listeners the -the behind-the-scenes look at the rarely seen but crucial work of a producer. Schlossberg recounts the trials and triumphs of work and play as a theater, film and TV producer, and radio host. It's a -a one-of-a-kind autobiography read by one of entertainment's true insiders. Try Not to Hold It Against Me is available on Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks.
0: you had a mixed reputation, but with you... I know you always felt he was a hell of a good guy. And didn't he give you a couple of suggestions about?
1: He came there one day. He wasn't working that day. And the ADs, you know, I said, no, what's Mr. Brenner doing here? Who called him? You know, they were going to say, did someone, he's going to find out he's not working. And, and the one of the ADs went up to him and said, Mr. Brenner, I, we don't need you today. Did someone call you? And he said, no. He said, well, why are you here? He said, I just can't think of a better place to be. He was just happy to be on a movie set. And he wasn't working that day, but he came to me and he said, some of the biggest Western movie stars, when they fire a gun, they blink. He said, it's almost impossible not to, but when it goes off, they blink. And some of the big stars, you'll see. So he said, I'm going to teach you. So that when you fire, which I had to do a bunch of times, you're not going to blink. And I said, okay. So we went out in the back lot with a, you know, a, a six shooter and blanks. And he put one in the chamber and spun the thing around. And he said, now, if you pull the trigger, you're going to blink because you think it's going to go off. And I pulled the trigger. It didn't go off. And I pulled like it didn't go off. So you're conditioning yourself not to blink. And then when it did go off, I didn't blink. And he said, see, you're going to be one of the few Western cowboys in the
0: movies.
1: (laughs) Don't blink. And the other thing he said to me, don't get caught climbing all the way up on the horse. What you want to do is start to put your foot in the stirrup. Make sure they cut away and then you settle into the saddle." Because that will look good. He took me to lunch one day to a Japanese restaurant on Pico. And, you know, there there was rumors that he came from, I don't know, Mongolia or something like that. And people said, well, maybe he's made that up. I think he's from Brooklyn and stuff. (laughs) And we come into the restaurant. They bowed and when they saw him
0: and everything. And then he spoke fluent Japanese to them. Richard... I'm fascinated by your meeting Stan Laurel, which I think is incredible of Laurel and Hardy. And I was also so pleased to know, because once again, Jerry Lewis had a mixed reputation, that he had been so generous. Could you tell a little bit about both those? All right. My uh, friend
1: of mine who I went to college with, uh, Jerry Ziesmer, was doing a paper at U, uh, UCLA on Laurel and Hardy. And he said to me, I've interviewed him a few times, and I'm going to out to interview Stan Laurel. Do you want to come out? So uh, from what I understood, he and his wife, in a uh, building facing the ocean, I think on Ocean Avenue in Santa Monica, they had no money, no nothing. And Jerry Lewis had set them up there. That's from what I understood and had taken care of, of Stan Laurel. So we go there and there's a buzzer on the building, you know, when you ring for the apartment, and it says S. Laurel on the app. And I press the button, and I hear, yes. And Jerry said, uh, Mr. Laurel, we're here. Can we come come right up?
0: <laughs>
1: there he was and his wife with a trunk in the middle of the room, with S and L intertwined on the trunk. Sitting there, like all of these guys, my uncle had the same thing. They lived at the Beacon Hotel in New York. Joe Browning had the J and the B. These guys, like George Burns, they're ready to go. Yeah. Have trunk, will travel. Will travel. They get the call. Those guys were on stage more than they were off stage in their, in their lives. And he's right there. We start chatting with him. Of course, he's delightful. And then I ask him about a scene. I think it's in the Foreign Legion thing where they're marching somewhere and the sergeant is marching and he's out of step. He's Stan Laurel. Stan Laurel in the scene is out of step with everybody else. And he taps the guy in front of him, points down. So that guy now is out (laughs) Except they're all out of step, except for the sergeant who's just furious and everything. So I said, "Where? Wh- how did that happen? He said, well, we had to go from one place to the other, and I thought we should go funny.
0: <laughs> how great. Well, the thing about Stan Laurel, even though he played the so-called dunce of the two, was really the brains of the outfit. Hardy loved to play golf. He was known as Babe, and he would just go play. And Stan took over everything. Yeah. And what was so fascinating, Dick, and I don't know if you know this, I hope you don't, (laughs) when they made their movies, Stan Laurel purposely made sure there was a pause for the audience to laugh so that they would hear the dialogue coming up, because if they went to the next thing quickly, they wouldn't. So when you look at it on television, you think, oh, there's – too many pauses in this for today. But he wasn't making it for television. He was making it for an audience and he knew what he was doing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I also heard that he made a, a Hardy wait because he knew Hardy wanted to go play golf for those kind of frustrated... <clears throat> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he made him wait to the end of the
0: day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, keep, to keep him from going. Well, you know, I was interested in knowing that you're very much against video playback when you're directing. Will you talk a little bit? Because that's that seems to be almost everybody's doing it.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, I don't like it. I mean, I don't like, I don't mind it being there, but not for the director to be disconnected from the actors. And I think it doesn't tell the truth anyway. You're looking at even a, however big these monitors have gotten now, It's only good for the framing and seeing what the camera is seeing. But I, in working with actors, was always right there next to the camera. And if anybody wanted to watch that over, they could. But, And then that whole thing of after every take, everybody rushing over there and looking at it and making these adjustments, it's no good. It's no good. What's happening right in front of you on a big screen is what the camera is actually picking up. I mean, their thoughts or even the very small things that are like real life and stuff. And if you stay by that monitor, you're disconnected from them. And as an actor, and I've worked with people as an actor who aren't even there, they're off somewhere else looking at a monitor, and you feel kind of isolated uh, and that there's not that give and take between the director and the actors. And as I say, it's it, it lies. The truth is of what the real-life people are doing right in front of you, and that's what you want the camera to see. Uh, and so if you make adjustments based on the video, I think you're harming it.
0: Well, it's interesting. Uh, I'm told that it was Jerry Lewis again who invented the video playback. It was his idea.
1: Yeah. It may be necessary for someone who's performing in it. Uh, he may need, have needed that to go, look, what did I do? Where did it ca- catch that? Was the framing okay? And stuff like that. But
0: for judging performance, I don't think it's a good idea. No. You're very famous for having a happy set, even if the film may not be going that well, and people consider you an actor's director. Did you ever run into any problems with, I mean, I've worked with crews. Some of them can be loud and a little bit obnoxious, depending, of course. Did you ever have to fire anyone for yelling or carrying on or anything like that?
1: Yeah, an AD because they were late. And of, of of all the people that can't be late, <laughs> it's the first AD. Yeah. I had to do that. But I had seen other signs of this person, not up to doing this to yes. do it, should be doing, and you don't like to do it, you don't want to do it, but you, sometimes you have to have to do it. But for the most part, and I've worked with uh, really professional people and great, great crews and and they're and they're helpful you, you know I've always felt that the person, the camera operator, the cinematographer, the prop guy. They should all be better at their jobs than you could be at their jobs. You've got to let them, and they'll contribute. They'll help you if you don't cut them out. You include them. You, you know, wonderful things can happen. They can come up with great ideas that you would never even have thought of. Uh, but if you push them away and then they mechanically do their jobs, they're not really interested in the project. I, I've always thought that's a mistake to, you know, not to in- include
0: everybody because they, they can save you sometimes. I noticed that before you were going to direct My Favorite Year, you went to Carl Reiner. I know that you became a bit of a sponge listening to Milos Forman and meeting George Kukar and getting to know Arthur Hiller. You did your due diligence. You didn't walk in and say, okay, I can do this. No, I went
1: to Carl and I said, do you have any advice? He said, Is it a comedy? And I said, Yeah. He said, Get funny people.
0: <laughs> 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 and and Milos did you some good advice at one point. Do you remember what it was? Now, the advice he gave me was in the theater because we were doing this play, The
1: Little Black Book. And he told me <laughs> before he said, Don't be nervous. The audience doesn't like it. <laughs> I said, okay, so you mean legislate out of yourself not to be nervous? Okay, it's opening night, you know. Said, Mike came back one opening night of, I forget which, it might have been when we were out of town with Barefoot. He came backstage and he said, you know, everything depends on tonight. So
0: <laughs>
1: creating more anxiety but poking a hole in it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, Mike, I remember having lunch with him and uh, I said to him, have you seen the new movie with Dustin Hoffman? Uh, he's got a big role in Joan of Arc. And he said, no, I haven't. He said, but half the people in the country think that Joan was married to Noah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, <the> arc. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you worked with Clint Eastwood, in City Heat, you directed it. He, of course, has turned into one of our great directors. Did he have any advice at all about directing? Yes, he did,
1: and it was good advice. First of all, with Clint, you move very fast. He thinks that it's kind of a mosaic. He, he you know, I'll do. I for another take with him, and he said, "Yeah." He said, I'll, sure." He said, "I'll do it." He said, "I don't think it's going to be any different, but sure." I'll do it. He thinks that it's kind of an impressionist thing. Don't try and perfect the life out of it. It starts to bore the crew if you keep doing take after take of the same thing. They like to move because like the actors like to act, they like to do what they do. And if you fin- you said, okay, we'll finish with this setup. We're over here now. Then they grab all the cable and they grab everything and they get you over there. And the next setup, they'll get you over there. And they're working the whole day. And that's what they like. And then the day's over and they've done something. But if you stay locked in someplace and do take after take, like it's going to be better. First of all, it's not going to be that much better. It may be a little better, but the whole movie is, is a bunch of impressions. And you can't linger on any of those things. And in fact, when we were, he grabbed Cable, in between and with the crew and, and move it all. And, and that was a good lesson in the energy of moving fast and shooting rehearsals. Don't waste it.
0: You may know I've represented uh, Aliyah Kazan for many years, and when he, I thought you might be interested if you didn't know that when he was making the movie Streetcar Named Desire, he had two sets built of the same film. In other words, he would rehearse in one while the crew set up the second, and therefore there was no waiting time because, as we both know, one of the worst parts about making a movie is waiting. Yeah, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting that he did that? Now, of course, Streetcar lends itself to that because so much of it took place in one room, so to speak. But I thought that was a brilliant thing to do, that he had done that. Yeah. Yeah course, sometimes the budget constraints don't let that happen either, so I wanted to ask you, I would not want to know the film or whatever, but have you ever been involved where you were either as an actor or a director or twice where you knew this is going nowhere, and what do you do about it if you have
1: well, I mean, I have, but you just keep going um. Listen, I don't understand any complaints about from anybody about making movies. I mean, I can't imagine a better thing to do and be lucky enough to get to do it and then to hear people complain about their dressing room or, or about this or people who are late uh, or disrespectful. I mean, I don't get it, you know. There are too many people who aren't that way. And if, if they come together with people who are the other way, uh, it hurts the whole thing, and, and it's depressing. And then you kind of feel, we just got to get through today and stuff like that. My job, the director's job, is to get it done and keep moving. And you're, you're always looking at what you had to accomplish that day. And when somebody, you know, they just won't come out of their dressing room, or they went somewhere and you can't find them, and then or... There's, there's some other kind of conflict going on. It's depressing, uh, but there's no choice except to keep doing
0: it and get it done. Actually, you sound like Clint Eastwood <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> in that regard. Yeah. Uh, Dick, if you look back on your acting career, what would you say was one of the major highlights, if not the highlight, of your acting career so far?
1: Well, a particular highlight There a bunch was working with James Mason in The Last of Sheila. I mean, he is, in my mind, the consummate movie actor. Anyway, and became a friend, and you know, which was a great gift. He, we had the last one of the final scenes in the movie. He and I, and he came to me a, a day before or something like that, and he said, "Should we?" We were on the set of the boat and he said, should we go up um, to the lounge and have some coffee or something? I was like, oh that'd be great. And now he's just, we're talking. It's a conversation. He's chatting about certain things, general things uh, about people uh, in the cast and other. And then he starts talking and I said, this is the scene we're doing tomorrow. He's gotten into the scene we are doing to, this is, he was using different names and different things, but this is actually the scene. And it was like an improvisation or something in this, what seemed to be just a conversation with he and I. And then when we actually did it, it, working with this actor, it, it was no longer... He stops talking, then I talk. He has this line, I have the next line. It was just happening because his presence is so real that you don't have any choice but to be in the moment with him. So that was an extraordinary
0: experience, extraordinary. I would think so, yeah. I was lucky enough to have him and interview him on my show and uh, it was great because I wanted to talk about Judy Garland and A Star Is Born because oh my God what a role he was so brilliant in that film and also where he played the te- and uh, Seventh Veil I think where he was such a horrible yeah. uh, man to his wife but tell me what once more and then I'll I'll say goodbye I guess is tell me about directing uh, again a uh, no, highlight a real was the one movie the uh, one film that you did that really. Was meant the most to you, or a real highlight, anyhow? Well, a bunch of
1: them. Um, certainly, um, working with O'Toole, but also the second movie I did, uh, Racing with the Moon with uh, Sean Penn and Nikki Cage, Elizabeth McGovern, that was pretty special. I'm thinking working with Nathan Lane was just fabulous. Uh, there was a laughter on the 23rd floor. He's great, a terrific person, but also I think he has a photographic memory. I mean, he learns the stuff so fast.
0: How could you not do that producer's last number in the producers yeah, and, yeah. Not, and not have a great memory, but we will still give the award to George Burns?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, all, all of it. I mean, I've been very fortunate uh, in these things, um, very fortunate, uh, with great people, the, the number of people. I mean, Cher was great. She's lovely and very, very smart. Sidney
0: Poitier must have been great to be around.
1: You know, I've cast people, what I keep saying, is for who they are, for this, who their soul because that's what i think the camera actually sees i mean you can talk about you know movie acting and uh like james mason but it's who they are because i believe that the that the camera s- sees in, into that so a lot of these people have that what i call that that soul thinking of yes uh, s- sydney uh and uh Working with uh, River Phoenix, it was a terrific kid.
0: I think one of my favorite lines of every film you did was when O'Toole screams, I'm not an actor, I'm a movie star. Yeah. 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 <laughs> actually, we've met people that we know are not actors, all movie stars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's true. Thank you, Richard, so much. I so appreciate it. It's truly it a pleasure. It was. Just a fun, fun thing.
2: Thanks for joining us on Julian Schlossberg's Movie Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.